Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 1934 edition. everybody and welcome back to our longtime listeners new time callers if there's anybody out there to the gilded films podcast which which picture was best glad to be back as always we are here today in a cold november it's cold here anyway in kansas i don't know about my good old friend brett over there in colorado but most likely it is um so no we're here we're gonna be talking about 1934 we are at the I'd say the midpoint of the Great Depression. Hollywood wants some, you know, little happiness in their films. They don't want too much sad stuff, something that's going to get, you know, too down in the dumps about everything. So here we are. We have, what is it, 11 movies we're going to be talking about? Yes. 11 movies. Uh, We're going to be splitting it up into two parts. Just an FYI for the listeners out there. Um, with our best picture winner being on the second half of this. But please listen to this one because it's going to be interesting. There's some interesting stuff in there. As always, here's uh, Brett. Hello. Hello, hello. Glad to be back. And a special guest today. You heard him back when we did uh, The Silence of the Lambs and Beauty and the Beast, that podcast of 1991, also the Christmas one. It is Toby. Hello. Hello. I'm uh, happy to be back. Yay, he uh, is actually living with me now, finally. So we're together. The last time he was in Ohio. So your check's in the mail. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is an interesting one. This is uh, the most Best Picture nominees we've ever had. Uh, and I'm pretty sure we ever will have. Um, I don't know if it ever got much higher than 12. Like Christian, we've only got 11 to cover because one of them is basically lost i mean there's a print out there but it's it's pretty well damaged um and so got a lot of films to cover like chris said we'll go over six today we tried to split it up so that some of the more popular and notable ones um were split between our two episodes so another shakeup we're not going really in complete alphabetical order with these ones so but yeah let's briefly go over the oscars of that year uh, they were the seventh Academy Awards, so still pretty new. They took place on February 27th, 1935. This was, you know, nearly pretty much a sweep for It Happened One Night and a sweep of the categories it was nominated for. It Happened One Night won Best Picture. It won Best Director for Frank Capra. It won Best Actress for Claudette Colbert. And it won Best Actor for Clark Gable, as well as Screenplay that year. So this was the first film ever to win the Big Five. And actually the last one that we've covered on this podcast, because we've already covered the other two. Which oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was obviously the big winner that night. They did not have supporting actor and supporting actress yet. So we didn't have winners there. But it happened one night. Those five wins were the most of the, of the ceremony. But the most nominations went to One Night of Love, which got six noms. Why? I don't know. Uh, we're going to cover that one today. It was hosted by Irvin S. Cobb, which is like a really 
strange hosting choice. I think I'm not gonna lie. I had no idea who this was when I first looked it up. Um, he was apparently like a columnist for uh, a New York newspaper at, at the time. So not exactly what you would see today. Uh, but it happened was night. Like I said, first of three films to win the big five Oscars. Um, the other two we've talked about one flew over the cuckoo's nest and silence of the lambs. This was the introduction of the categories of best film editing, best original score and best original song. And so not quite to the supporting acting yet, but we got some other good categories in there. This was also the first of only two ceremonies in which write-in nominations were allowed. Uh, Betty Davis got into best actress for of human bondage through this method. And it was a big, big deal when she didn't win. Interesting. Uh, this is also the last time there were all first time nominees in the best actor category. So after the first seven years, we would have people there who had been nominated before. Uh, and Shirley Temple received the juvenile award at age six, and she is still the youngest Oscar recipient, though not for competitive categories. Um, that goes to Tatum O'Neill. So, which we'll cover someday as well. Perfect. So yeah, we got the Oscars this year, still really early, um, you know, all black and white movies, a um, lot of nominees here. And so we're going to jump off with our six today with our first film, which is The Barretts of Wimpole Street. And so I'm going to go over this one. Uh, so this follows the, the titular family, The Barretts. They are led by their father, who is played by Charles Lawton. And um, I think there's like, there's like 10 kids or something, mostly brothers. Um, there's two sisters uh, led by Norma Shearer, who plays Elizabeth Barrett. She is bedridden for some kind of illness that she has had for a long time. It's implied that, you know, she can't walk well, she can't ever leave her room. And as a result, she's kind of kept prisoner in this home that they have. I mean, this is a well-off family, but Charles Lawton is pretty very cruel to all of his children, and especially Norma Shearer's character by basically keeping her there locked up, preventing her from seeing the world. Um, and a big thing for him is that he does not allow his children to marry. So he is like strongly against them falling in love, you know, getting together with other people and going off and doing their own thing. It gets pretty creepy after a while. Um, but it does get complicated when Elizabeth uh, falls for, um, another character, she she falls for Frederick March's character, Robert Browning, and her sister, who's played by, by Marino Sullivan, also falls for a soldier. And so you basically got both daughters here who are, you know, going against daddy's wishes and falling in love with two men. Um, directed by Sidney Franklin, this is not a movie that I expected to like, if I'm being completely honest. Um, it just kind of when I was looking it up, it just kind of struck me as kind of like rich family doing their thing, not something I'm typically interested in, but I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was really well shot. It's, it looks really crisp um, in a way that a lot of films from this time don't now. Um, I mean, even if, if you just watch on Amazon Prime, I think is where I saw it. Um, it looks really good, even though a lot of it does take place indoors and may seem a, a little bit stagey at times. It is based on a play. It always looks really beautiful. Whenever we do go outside, the falling snow looks gorgeous. 
And I think Norma Shearer is pretty excellent in the lead role. Um, I mean, she's very, very down to earth with this character. It's not like a very showy role, I don't think, in any way. Uh, she keeps it pretty low key. And I think that's for the best because she allows us to really, really like this character. She's really lovable, I think. And on the flip side of that, Charles Lawton is like a character that we have to hate uh, because, you know, that's the way it is. And he makes it so easy to do that. Um, pretty much tyrannical performance without being over the top as well. I mean, his, his brutality is not, it's not necessarily physical. It's not out there, but it's, it's very restrained in a way. And I think that kind of helps keep the film grounded. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. It's, you know, one of my favorites that I've seen from the year so far of this first batch of nominees we have covered. And so, yeah. What are your guys' thoughts? No, um, I liked it too. And I'm very surprised because especially these sort of costume dramas of the early thirties, they can get very, I don't know, hoity-toity, boring. There's one coming up that I absolutely hated, but I like this. And this is definitely um, <clears throat> incestuous relationship, the movie, so to speak. Um, but no, Charles Lawton is great in this. Norma Shearer is great in this. Um, Toby, you like the sister in this. I know that you told me that. Um, but no, yeah, I do. I did like that it was set sort of in that room. I, it was pretty much in her room the whole time. She was pretty confined to there. They didn't want her leaving at all. I don't know. It made it feel like there wasn't so much background stuff that you had to worry about too. So like everything was happening in her world, in her room, in her house, right. you know? Um, but yeah. And Frederick March is the lead, the male lead in this. And yeah. he would go on, of course, a great success of his own. Um, what did I want to say? Oh, okay. So this is a true story, really. Um, Elizabeth Barrett is the uh, Norma Shear role, but she was a poet. And I guess her famous poem that I really never knew was, um, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. So we've heard that many times before, you know, movies, really anything, courting people. But there's also like a fun fact that she's never seen in this movie actually writing anything. So. Right. They always talk about her being this great poet, but we never yeah. see her actually doing it. That's interesting. Yeah. But no, and yeah, it is pretty crisp. Um, as you described it, we watched it on Turner Classic Movies because I had a recording of it. But yeah. Nice. Toby, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I liked it more than I thought I would too. Um, like you said, the being in one room thing, like you really, you get to the drama of it you focus on what's actually going on versus like, you know, what's going on around them. It's just what's going on with them. By the end of it, I was sort of like absorbed in this like drama that was going on between like the different people. And it was like interesting in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, I am one that like oftentimes when I, when you, I see films that are very clearly based on place and they often do take, you know, place in one location it oftentimes get tiresome for me but i think this time it is effective for that reason because i mean norma shear's character has to stay there for basically the entire film and so we kind of get kind of get to feel what she's feeling a little bit um Plus it is, with it, her. It, it's basically her prison from what her dad keeping her in there too right right exactly and i joke yeah. and say the incestuous part but it gets pretty uh between charles lawton and norma shear it gets pretty interesting <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's definitely not, uh, de- definitely not uh, consensual, um, just kind of going into Charles Lawton's character and his, his just ugly and overall just hypocritical nature. Uh, I mean, this is someone who's like, he's against his children getting married and pretty much it's not stated, but pretty much having sex. And this guy has nine kids. So (laughs) I, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a good movie. It's really interesting. It's like you said, Christian, it's not at all the costume drama that I expected. I mean, it takes places, takes place in 1845 London, which normally that's a red flag for me. If I'm being honest, that's just, that's just not my thing, but works really well here um so this was actually i was kind of surprised this was only nominated for two oscars um best picture and actress for norma Shearer. pretty surprised that lawton didn't get in as well as um well i guess he's supporting the dev supporting so i guess this makes sense well that's, um, that's the acting nominations were so weird that year because there's only what three actors right three actresses i think and then betty was in there with the write-in Right. So. Um, so the incestuous remarks by father to daughter, especially near the end of the film, were toned down by the studio for obvious reasons. This was the same. 1934 was the year the production code came out in full force um, in July of that year. So um, we're basically on the edge of pre-code and code Hollywood. Um, Charles Lawton famously remarked that he couldn't censor the gleam in his eye, however. <laughs> uh, William Randolph Hearst, uh, famous newspaper magnet, was furious when his mistress Marion Davies was not cast in the film. I just put that little fun fact there because uh, in a few weeks that movie Mank will be coming out, and she's like a prominent yes. character. Yeah, played by Amanda Seyfried in that. Looking forward to it. Um, for being a great poet, Elizabeth, like you said, Christian is never seen writing anything. Variety at the time called it truly an actor's picture, but it was overall slow and talky and suggested a shorter runtime. And according to MGM Records, the film earned about 1.2 million in the US and Canada. It was a huge success in rural areas, despite being about the upper class, very much so. Uh, and it was remade in 1907 in color by the same director, Sidney Franklin. So mm-hmm. kind of showed up again a couple decades later. I will say that the um, being pretty successful in the rural areas, there's a variety article called Sticks, Nicks, Hick Picks. <laughs> yeah, this is where I got this fun fact. But basically, it talks about the films of the time. Because I, like I said at the beginning of this, this is during the Depression era. So people want a little bit more, less focused on the rich upper class and the, you know, the common man. But there was movies like this that this article talks about where... Suddenly, farmers, people in the Midwest liked it. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that is the Barretts of Wimpole Street. Good, you know, costume um, period drama worth checking out. All right, Christian, you've got our next three. So, oh my God, do I really? (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead and take it away with the first one. All right, the first one that I have here, picture it, Egypt, 4 BC, man-hungry queen of Egypt, uh, what the hell is her name? Elizabeth Taylor, wrong, Cleopatra. 
So Cleopatra here starring Claudette Colbert in one of three films of hers that we will talk about because, you know, Claudette Colbert, queen of 1934 movies. Um, Cleopatra's in a love affair with Julius Caesar at the time. And she sort of gives him the idea to be a little bit more powerful in his position as emperor of Rome. The idea of being a king of Rome is, doesn't go well with any of the Romans. But their relationship is getting all, you know, very close. People don't really like her. They want her to go back to Egypt. Then, of course, Caesar dies, as we know. Beware the Ides of March. Uh, Cleopatra returns. Then she falls in love with Mark Antony. Not the singer. Sorry. <laughs> Ha-ha! I see, every time I thought of Mark Anthony, I think of the singer, but it's Mark Anthony. Whatever. <laughs> so she falls in love with him. There's a lot of uh, issues there. It's basically a war of the known worlds, let's say. And Cleopatra is at the center of this in her own domain in Egypt, although I guess you would say she wants to be a ruler of Rome as well. She has a pretty good relationship with all the Romans. Um, but no, it's a very sexy film, I will say. I said this to Brett the other day. I said this to Toby. Uh, it's, again, pre-code Hollywood so we could get away with stuff. Cecil B. DeMille is the director. It is a short film, not unlike the Ten Commandments, which we talked about, another one of his films. But it is huge and epic in scale. Let's say that. The man had a budget. Um, definitely an influence for the 1963 epic that is very huge, but not as good. This one I very much did like. Um, I like Claudette a lot in this. She's very, I would say she's kind of a conniving, cunning, like the woman knows what she wants and she knows how to get it. And she knows when things aren't going her way. As you know, with the history of Cleopatra, what happens next, her and a snake, yeah. But uh, no, the production value on this is amazing. The costumes are pretty amazing too, I will say. Um, and then there's one shot, uh, because this one best cinematography and there's one shot that I really love and it's a camera just pulling back on this entire like I don't know it's like a throne room whatever's happening it's just a good it's a good movie I will say it's not boring at all so we're like two for two here with a not boring historical epic thoughts gentlemen I mean it's definitely helped by it's like runtime because it I'm thinking of the 1963 one where it's like however long and it just feels long but this one, you really get to the events of it, and it just seems like it goes much quicker. And the events appear to be more significant because they happen closer together. That makes sense. Yeah, I differ a little bit. I did find it a little bit dull at times. Hmm. But here's the thing: I have never seen another version of Cleopatra. Okay, so I haven't. I haven't seen the the, the what four hour nineteen sixty three Elizabeth Taylor version. Um, or really anything else. So, I mean, I don't have that to compare it against. Um, so, I mean, and you know me, I'm not a fan of a lot of long movies, um, especially epics like, you know, Cleopatra. Um, so maybe, I mean, maybe this one will get better for me over time once I eventually do get to that one. But you can definitely tell it's Cecil B. DeMille. I mean, it's, it's got DeMille written all over it. I mean, like just with the content, you know, he was real into that you know, ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, Rome stuff. And, um, you know, we've covered him before talking about, you know, Moses, um, you know, with the 10 commandments and that was a much longer movie as well, though much better movie, I will say. Uh, I, I think where I agree most is that Claudette Colbert is pretty great in this movie. 
I think the movie would fail without her, honestly. Um, just because I, I found her performance to be really good throughout. Like, there's never a moment where she isn't just powerful um, in a way, even if her character doesn't, you know, feel powerful. Um, her performance is. And I also think she stands out because honestly, I thought everybody in this movie was so stale um, acting wise. Like I thought, I thought Henry Wilcoxon, every say his name as Mark Antony and Warren William as Julius Caesar. I thought their acting was pretty wooden, uh, not very exciting at all. And standing next to Claudette Colbert, that's especially true. Um, so I mean, I think she kind of holds the film together in addition to like you said, Christian, the cinematography and the production design, because those are say, both really brilliant. I will say the one time that I, well, yeah, the one time that I did sort of phase out of this was during the battle sequence, which a little bit near the end of the film, where it's not focused on her so much as it is yeah. fighting. It's like, right. I, I did not care. And again, that's the Cecil B. DeMille epicness of it. Right. Yeah. And it is epic. I mean, like his cinematography is awesome. It was, it was awesome. And when we talked about the 10 commandments, his production design is uh, undoubtedly by far the best of the six films um, we've seen so far, I think, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and there's a tracking shot during like a, a party scene or something that um, I mean, for that time for 1934, it, it's an impressive shot. It's an impressive mobility of the camera. And so I definitely think it has its merits. I don't think it's a bad movie by any means. I think it's like, it's right on the border of being, you know, like, and just, you know, okay for me. Um, leaning a little bit, you know, more towards the, the latter two, but it's, it's worth watching for its merits. One, like Toby said, it's not very long. Claudette Colbert is great. And the technical aspects are great as well. Um, and it, it's, it's a familiar story. So maybe that has a factor as well. It's funny because when we, were, when we were watching this, the scene where Cleopatra is entering um, Rome and there's like the, they're carrying her basically on a party. And that scene in like the 1963 version is expanded to like 15 minutes long. <laughs> and it's like the most, you can tell the budget on this probably went over. And then this is like, we're just following her five, four, three, two. And she's there. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, this is definitely the precursor for things to come. Right, right. Yeah, like I said, very DeMille. Uh, it, it's a DeMille movie. It, it really, it's got a lot of his trademarks. So, including the risque, uh, you know, the scantily clad women in the film and whatnot. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that too, obviously. I was so. very surprised at how much skin Claudette was showing. <laughs> it, it just reminds you that this was, this film was made right before the production code really went into effect. And it was actually like released like right after. So I imagine the production code folks absolutely hated it. Yeah. Christian, do you want to go over our fun facts for this one? Yes. All right. So like we said, it won for best cinematography. It had four additional nominations for picture assistant director, because that was a category at the time, film editing and sound recording. It was the most popular movie at the box office in 1934, which I can sort of understand that, you know, again, with the Great Depression, we're seeing something grand, something spectacular. Uh, one of the three big films for Claudette Colbert in 1934. The other two will be on our next episode. Also for personal stuff, she has a chance of being on there thrice. So that's pretty big. Yeah. Um, okay. The most interesting thing here 
uh, let's see. Well, I'm going to save this one for last because that one's interesting. So DeMille made sure to flaunt the restrictions of the Hayes Code before it went into full force later on, hence the movie Sex Appeal, as we've said. Claudette Colbert was the cause of many delays because of health issues, and she felt her costumes didn't fit her correctly. <laughs> her costumes and half of them were like, you know, a bra, a skirt. Yeah. About it. And then the most interesting thing, honestly, was DeMille had watched the original 1917 version of this film for a little bit of inspiration. And three years after the release of this, a fire destroyed almost all of Fox's known archival prints, meaning that DeMille and his crew might have been the last people to see that 1917 version in full. That's interesting. So I'm not saying DeMille took a match to the Fox archives, but... Yes. My version is the best. I can't be sued for libel right now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. Christian, you texted me last night and you're like, tell me that isn't the sexiest movie of 1934. <laughs> it's not just the it's not just the clothing though. It's like the way they act and like the the you know the scenes between Cleopatra and Mark Antony and the way they're constructed. It's there's something going on along below the surface there. So right. But yeah, that is Cleopatra, the epic of the year, though still under two hours, which is nice. Any further thoughts on that one before our next film? I have none. Nope. All right, Christian, you can take it away once again. All right. Uh, so this is a musical. It seems like every year has a musical for us for some reason. I'm always one introducing it. Whatever. This is The Gay Divorcee. The... Second, yeah, second pairing of Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. If you know anything about them, famous really for their dancing films. Um, one of the best, I would say, chemistry-wise for like classic Hollywood. Uh, watch their stuff though, it's pretty good. So this is their second pairing. I'm just gonna read the IMDb, IMDB plot here. Basically, a woman thinks a flirting man is the co-respondent her lawyer has hired to expedite her divorce. It's a simple plot. There's song and dance numbers. The two sort of drift together in a way that is obviously very romantic. It's best known though for a very long song called The Continental, which would go on to win the Oscar that year. Uh, it's not one of my favorites, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, although I, I do really like it. I think I like so more the supporting cast actually in this. Um, than anything and the song and dance numbers because those are like just amazing the continental is so beautifully staged for something 1934 i don't think it had anything to do with Buzz busby berkeley um, but definitely a lot of influence there from him i don't know if that's true or not but hey for me what i've seen blah 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 uh but no it's a it's a good film and definitely if you're getting into fred rock fred fred rogers Jesus. <laughs> Fred and Ginger Rogers. I would start with this because the first movie that they did, the I think it was the year before or the same year, which is Flying Down to Rio. They're like not together the whole time because they're supporting characters. So this is like their true first pairing together. Okay. And then from there, they would make a partnership that would last a lifetime. And here we are still talking about them. But yeah, so... Oh, nice. Both of you, I don't think, have seen this ever, right? No, not before. No. Okay. But you've seen a Stare and Rogers films? Yes. No. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I've been thinking about this moment when I revealed to you that I this was my first Astaire, uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie. I mean, <sighs> I've seen I've seen scenes obviously from from Top Hat and Shall We Dance and you know things like that. I've seen some of their you know dance numbers and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, my first full film, it was good. Um, it, you know, I it, I didn't find it exceedingly special or, or great by any means, but there were certainly a number of moments that were a lot of fun and stuck out. Um, I think, you know, once the mix up actually happens in the hotel room, that leads to a lot of funny dialogue, um, between, you know, Fred Astaire and, um, you know, the guy that's hired to basically stage an affair with Rogers's character. Um, the constant sequence is really, really cool. You know, sometimes sequences like that tend to feel like they go on too long, but I, I didn't really get the feeling with that with this one, even though it's what, like 17, 20 minutes. I mean, it's a long sequence and a pretty- Especially since it's, it's cut too. There's like just a lot of dialogue in the middle of it all too. Right, right. I exactly, exactly. So you're not just watching the same thing over and over and over. Um, but no, it was good. I kind of agree with your take on the supporting cast. I thought Alice Brady was an absolute riot in this. Um, she was probably my favorite performance as the aunt character. And I found her pretty funny. Um, and the plot was, you know, the, the, the plot was okay. I, I think the plot is one of the more weaker aspects of it. Um, it's just Fred, Ast Fred Astaire's character is really weird uh, for like the first 30 minutes or so of this movie. Like it's borderline predatory. Uh, and so like, like he meets this person like once. And like, I, I know it's like this whole love at first sight thing, but it's just like, almost strange from there the way he pursues her and obviously things end up for the best but it takes a while to kind of get there the first time they do kind of connect and have that little dance scene is kind of nice um but overall it, it's good it's one that it, it's an easy watch i mean it's what an hour and 47 minutes all of these films from this year so far are pretty short so um they're kind of nice and you know this one's a joy you know for the most part and Far from perfect. It's got issues here and there. Um, Honestly, it's like it's all their films that they've made together that I've seen because I've only seen Top Hat, Swing Time, this, and I think I've seen Shall We Dance, but they're all pretty harmless. And it basically yeah. is the same thing over and over. Like he's trying to pursue her. She's like, eh. And then they're like, let's dance. Oh, I'm in love with you. Right, right. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, Ginger Rogers is really charming and Fred Astaire, you know, even when his character gets weird, he does have charisma, obviously, and he's really talented. So it works for the most part. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. It's, it's definitely worth it for the like dance numbers alone. And like, but the plot, like you've been saying is like a little bit basic, a little bit like, could, you know, could be like any movie, yeah. right? like cookie cutter, but at the end with the continental it's it's pretty impressive and you probably wanted to talk about that one thing with the table oh yeah i pointed yeah. i pointed this out to him and he freaked out and then i pointed it out to you i don't know if you like saw it or not but there's the final dance sequence that fred and ginger are doing in the room they go from and if you watch this closely they go from table chair to floor and in the process of that when they're on the table, Fred Astaire's feet touch the chair, but never once do Ginger's. Ginger's just goes from, ta from table to floor. So essentially, for a brief second, he is lifting that woman. 
Now, I highly doubt she weighs anything, but that is stamina and that is great dancing ability to hold your partner and not let her drop. And I'm wondering like how many takes they had to do to get that right. And it, it, looked just, it just looks so smooth. Yeah. One smooth Interesting. Up and down. And like, you don't catch it right away. Cause like you, I had to show Toby. Right. And it's like, it's so perfect of a shot too. Christian, was that something that you had heard of before or like read about before? Or did you just notice it when you were watching? No, I think the first time, because the first time that I had watched this was actually with um, KB, who has been on the show before. Okay. Not at KB, um, but I watched it with him and his family. And I might have noticed it there because I think this is only the second time I had seen this movie. So, okay. but I had to have noticed it because I noticed it then and I noticed it now. And it just amazes me every single time. That's interesting. That's really like, for him to hold her up. And I mean, I don't know how scared she was. She's probably just like, don't you drop me. <laughs> that's really interesting. I didn't notice it. Uh, and I mean, you text me like, did you notice this? And I'm like, no, but that's like really impressive. Yeah, that's no. cool. So I don't know. There's a lot. It's there's a lot of uh, technical aspects and uh, Fred Astaire movies because there's like other movies like Royal Wedding where she's not in it, but he is and he dances on the ceiling that I, I'm so heavily researched into it and how that shot actually works. But I mean, I haven't found anything on this. I'm just assuming he was like, he had to hold her up and pray for the best. <laughs> I don't even have it on purpose. I mean, purpose. It right? was just like a, her, her, her foot missed the chair or the table and it was just like all happened at once. So quick. But That's it's a good point. And there's that famous quote too that she said, that's like to paraphrase basically i did the same thing fred did but backwards and in heels <laughs> interesting but i'm yeah. still gonna see my fun fact of there will never be a fred astaire movie because he left it in his will never make a movie out of me really okay fun fact good yeah hmm. i don't know i looked that up a few years ago when i was watching i think it was like the towering inferno huh. interesting Speaking of fun facts, do you want to run through those now? Yes. All right. So it did win the inaugural best original song for the Continental, which is so weird because, you know, you wouldn't think a 17 minute song and dance number would win best song. But hey, it did. Uh, four additional noms for picture art direction, which the art direction is pretty good, especially the dance hall that the Continental does take place in. Score and sound recording. The second pairing of Stan Rogers, uh, really their first lead together. The Continental lasts 17 and a half minutes, the longest song, I guess, until the um, ballet sequence of, of An American in Paris, which we'll talk about that film someday. Before filming, Astaire insured his legs for 300 grand. <laughs> I mean, why not? The original title of this was The Gay Divorce, but that was deemed risque. Hall. Oh, because 1934 people were weird. I literally wrote that in the facts. Anyway, while a divorcee could be gay or lighthearted, it would be unseemingly to allow a divorce to appear so. Ooh. And it earned about a million dollars in the US and Canada. Production code was a weird thing. This is a bad right. thing. Glad it's gone. But yeah, the gay divorcee, it's fun. It is, it, is, it is a fun, nice, joyful movie, so. Honestly, though, like, especially if you're wanting to get into Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, it's a good place to start. Yeah. Okay. So, Christian, you've got this one once again. This is going to be undoubtedly a change of pace for us, I think. And so 
take it away with our next film. All right. So our next film, I hated. I hated this film so much. I wish I never would have seen this. I probably never would have seen this if it hadn't been for this podcast. So this is called Dedication. The film is called... (laughs) God. All right. The film is called The House of Rothschild. Whoa. Sounds cool. Wrong. I'm just going to read the IMDb plot here and go off of this. The wealthy Rothschild family undergoes prejudice from the anti-Semitic society they live within. Basically, a patriarch tells his children, y'all are Jewish, go be the best bankers in the world possible. Live up to my name, build your fortune because you are Jewish. You are Jewish, you are Jewish. He tells them they are Jewish so much. I understand, okay? They face their prejudices. They build their fortune. Um, George Arliss is the main character, I guess, in this. I guess he plays both father and child that this is really focused on. Um, George Arliss, famous for winning his Oscar for, what the heck was it? Disraeli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like that movie either. I don't like George Arliss, okay? He's not a good actor. Anyway, um, so we just follow basically this family, their prejudices, there's the Napoleonic Wars going on and sort of their conflict of like how they want to get involved with this war, how they want to get involved with other people. It's basically how they're securing their financial wealth. They're not very likable. Nobody in this film is very likable. I couldn't tell you much after that. I joke and keep saying like the Jewish thing. But it really emphasizes this, that they want you to know that they are a proud Jewish family. And I kind of understand that because this is Europe at the time when there was a lot of anti-Semitism. That anti-Semitism would carry on until, of course, World War II. We see what happens there with the rise of the Nazis. But yeah, it's not a memorable film at all. At all. Anything that I've seen of George Arliss, and this is my third, the other one being his winning role, this, and then he did in a Hamilton film. I was surprised when he didn't rap, okay? I just don't <laughs> like the man. I don't think he's a good actor. I don't know. And I guess Boris Karloff was in this, and you can tell how much I was not focused that I missed Boris Karloff. How can you miss Boris Karloff? How can you miss that voice, that look? And this is post Frankenstein, post the mummy. And I missed him. All right. So House of Rothschild, go. I mean, you can definitely tell you feel very uh, adamant about this movie and how much you don't like it. You could tell you were getting very passionate there for a second. Thank you. (laughs) I'm not sure I understand. Even Siri doesn't understand the movie. <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, this is a pretty terrible movie. I, um, yeah, I concur with pretty much everything you said. George Arliss is not very good in it. And partially just because, like, his character sucks. Um, all the characters suck. I mean, th- this movie is all about, you know, th- this person who, uh, is oppressed because he's Jewish um, and whatnot. But it doesn't really go into that a whole lot um, in a way that, you know, I thought it kind of would. And it also gives into stereotypes of its own. I mean, like, all of the characters in here, like, especially the Jewish characters, they are not personalized but besides being bankers, you know? And so, like, that's, that's all the development they're given. 
And so, you know, you're kind of like feeding into a stereotype there where you're not giving them any, you know, qualities or personality beyond that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the story. It's the story of a rich man getting richer. And I guess that's a success story for the time. This, like you said, Chris, this was during the the damn depression. I mean, like how do, how do people, you know, go to this movie about rich people and this time getting richer and blah, 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 when, you know, we got all this going on. Um, so I, it just seems very, not only misplaced for the time period, but something that wouldn't work in any time period. It's just not a very good movie. It's so boring. I mean, I, I hate just like resorting to that, but that, that's what it is. There's not a whole lot going on here. The thing it probably does best is like setting itself in a historical context during, like you said, the Napoleonic Wars. But that's not exactly difficult to do. I mean, they they talk about Napoleon extensively in this film. And so I can hardly remember any of the characters aside from the main Rothschild. I do remember Boris Karloff in this film, but it's not a very good role. Um, once again, there's a, a subplot between his daughter and a, a guy she loves. Uh, it's not on par with with the Barretts. Let's put it that way. It's it's extremely dull. It's extremely dull. Thank goodness it's only an hour and twenty eight minutes. I know. I was like halfway through it. I'm like, is this almost over? <laughs> and yeah. and you who watched it with me. I mean, I have nothing to add. You can't really like. There's nothing. I didn't get anything out of it. Like even. I don't know, even like some bad movies, I get something out of it, like something take away out of it. But this, I'm just like, am I going to remember anything from it? Like any um, was, those shots? There's no like... Was this the one that you told me the best part was the ending? I think so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> then, well it changed, changes to like color. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Was like the most excited we were for the whole Yeah, because it's like we didn't like... Okay, so you can, for us, you can definitely tell when we're not focused on something we like because we'll go onto our computer and we'll just turn around and I'll just look up like, "Mm, okay. And then suddenly the film turns to color in the very like last five minutes and both of us are like, wait, what? What? What's happening here? (laughs) Like the most interesting thing is it turns to color. And even then, I don't care what's happening. I'm just like, color. Interesting. Yeah, and I... I like I said I watched a diff- I watched a version on YouTube and either I just completely don't remember that whatsoever or uh it you know it was a version that didn't have that. So yeah, there really is a version because I checked there is a version on YouTube that doesn't have the color. Okay. That must and have been what I watched. There's a second one on YouTube that does. But like looking through the fun facts and stuff, there was color in this film. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I I am like fairly certain the version I watched was the one that didn't have color, but maybe it was just I was just so ready to be done with it that I didn't even notice. Right. But and also the bear the the Barretts. Well, I'll go back to them, but the Rothschilds were a real family. Right. Of thinkers. But to say uh compare this to the Barretts of Wimple Street and how Barretts was seen as something very interesting and liked within the rural community, and then you have something like this. I think it had to do with the whole money portion of this because like we keep saying, this is the great depression. Nobody has money. Right. So I really want to see a story about a family gaining money. Cause I wish I had that. I'm standing here in a bread line. You know, I paid my what three cents to see this movie. 
Right. I want my three cents back. This is a waste of my time. Whilst the Barretts, I can understand like it's sort of a love story. Right. It's, it's, easier, a, it's easier to escape yeah. into the Barretts than it is into Rothschild. Like you can just yep. like forget about what's going on with the Barretts, but the Rothschild is like, honey. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think it's just like the characters, like the characters in Barrett's, they seem like real people. Like here, right. they're just like caricatures uh, that can speak. And, you know, it just, it doesn't work what that well whatsoever. Also, and I think Brett's been doing this too, and I've been doing it. I've been ranking all of the nominees that we've been watching um, in like one big list. And this has beaten Wilson. 1944 oh. as the worst best picture nominee i have seen so far interesting yes i think mine is what was the one from 1943 the oh in which we serve <laughs> gosh we've seen some bad that's ones. that's that's down there on the bottom 10 but no this is number i think I've, we've ranked like well i've ranked 120 some so right wow all right. Well, Christian, do you want to go over our facts for this one? I guess. This That's is also the fun. We've, we've lost the, the Rothschilds fans. <laughs> so this only got one nomination for Best Picture. And I'm pretty sure what I've read is that uh, between this and what, Grand Hotel. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. that only has one, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's happened okay. a few times. Yeah. So like, but the three times that it's happened have all been in the 30s. Well, Oxbow. Oh, an Oxbow. Oxbow okay, one, so there's yeah. like a few. Yeah, uh, it doesn't really happen much these days. But yeah, only one nomination for Best Picture. They shouldn't really have, but whatever. The brief closing scene was shot in the newly developed three-strip Technicolor process, the first feature film to include such a sequence. It is really interesting, Brett. Go back and watch it. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> uh, Probably Boris, won't. <laughs> Boris Karloff's role in this helped up his salary and star status at Universal post the mummy and Frankenstein. Basically he wanted to quit universal cause they weren't giving him the money that he thought he deserved. So he went to do other things and then they were like, well, okay, we'll give you some more money. But that's how we got like Friday Frankenstein. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter is descended from the Rothschilds families via her mother's side. I, yeah. Interesting. And for 20th century pictures, later 20th century Fox later, Disney, I guess. Uh, this is the biggest hit for them of the year. So they must not have had a lot going on. Depression. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there's the House of Rothschild. Any further that thoughts on that one? I'm honestly glad we got it out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we can jump into one that I actually disliked even more than the House of Rothschild, if I'm being honest. And that is One Night of Love. So this was directed by Victor Schertzinger. Um, I, I think this is one that I was actually kind of looking forward to because it seemed like a nice low-key romance on the surface. An hour and 24 minutes long, really short nice let's get to the point you know um it for me it wasn't that at all this is a story of mary barrett yet another barrett different from the family i believe um who is an aspiring opera singer and she wants to go to um 
Milan, Italy to work under the tutelage of Giulio Monteverde. Uh, so Barrett's played by Grace Moore. Monteverde is played by Tulio Carminati. Um, and so she basically learns under him. He is very strict, has a lot of rules. He basically demands that he pretty much dominates her life. Um, she faces having stage fright and he kind of tries to help her go over that. In comes another woman who was uh, a pupil of um, Monteverde before and it kind of creates some drama there about who loves who. And Mary falls for him very quickly and the film is basically about the two of them, you know, coming together in their love while he is her mentor. Uh, definitely some stars born vibes, but far from being on the same level. I just didn't get anything from this film whatsoever. I found it to be completely emotionless. Um, Opera is not really my thing. So, I mean, it, it wasn't going to draw me in from that. Um, I thought the acting o overall was, was pretty dull. Um, I, none of them really did anything for me. I, I wish I could say that for Grace Moore because you know, I know this was probably a big role for her and, um, you know, she's the lead and whatnot, but even she just nothing, nothing for me. She's a, she's a great singing voice. And that's, you know, that's about it for me. Uh, perhaps the worst thing this thing does is, uh, Jane Darwell appears in it and she is uncredited. Like, how do you not credit Jane Darwell for appearing in your movie? Um, yeah, yeah. Jane Darwell is uncredited for this movie. So, um, there's that, that already knocks it down like two points for me. If you ever do that to Jane Darwell. Um, and so, and granted she only appears in the first five minutes. So like, it's not a huge deal, but I mean, like I said, it just, it didn't do anything for me. Like, it's not one that is just like aggressively terrible from start to finish, but I don't, it didn't make me feel anything. I could not care whatsoever. It's one of the longest films under 90 minutes I can ever recall seeing because it just drags and drags and drags and does the same thing over and over. And it all just feels so recycled too. Um, you know, very cookie cutter of different plots thrown in there. And so it didn't do anything for me. I think that's the worst thing a film could do is to not have any effect on you whatsoever. Um, and so I am, I, I'm not a fan at all. <clears throat> I'm off the deep end, watch as I dive in. It was basically a star is born, but opera. After that, I honestly, I, I gave it a one and a half star. I didn't hate it as much as Rothschild's, but again, that ain't saying much to one and a half stars. <laughs> I could not tell you anything about this movie 24 hours later, other than she's an opera star who wants to be even more successful. She sings Carmen. That part I really liked. And then she comes out and does Madame Butterfly. That part I really liked. And that's all I remember. Yeah. This is like, a those... watch, it's a watch on the Ryan situation where it's like, Christian, do you remember this movie? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> And like, you can look up both of those things sung by someone better on YouTube and like, just get that for your fix anyway. So. Toby. Well, I mean, I have to agree. Like, <laughs> you can't get much out of it. You, she does sing very nicely, like you said, Brett. But like you also said just now, you can find anybody singing those songs just as nicely <laughs> anywhere else. 
Yeah, there's not much substance to this. No, it's a Star Is Born, but without the yeah, yeah, interesting heart. Anything that it would be worth getting out of, I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, I fact that this has the most nominations of the year. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea where that's coming from. Okay, because like the version I watched on, like I I rented it from Amazon, and I get like movies are old. They they don't hold up well. But like it did not look good. It, it is not all that well shot. There, I didn't find anything of real technical value either. I mean, oftentimes you have movies like this where, you know, they may be failing a little bit on the, you know, the acting or the or the dialogue, whatever it might be. But they have technical craft. This one doesn't. It doesn't have either. It's got nothing. You can't believe you paid for this. <laughs> I know. I know. I gave you a website. Well, this was when my my uh, laptop was broken, oh, okay. and I was really tired of watching on my little tablet that day. So I'm like, I'm just gonna rent it so I can watch it on TV. And it was a mistake. It was a waste of a dollar or two dollars, however much it was. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. we had back to back movies that both of us like super hated. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it means we can only go up from here. Um. We don't have very many fun facts for this one. Not because we didn't want to. There's, there just really isn't that much out there. Um, but it did have two wins. It won for the score. I, I thought the score was fine. You know, like I, I don't hate that win as much as I thought I would. It's got another win for sound recording. I can um, understand that, I guess. But yeah, sure. Musical. But I, the, honestly, if it was a sound recording to a musical, give it to the gay divorcee, at least. Yeah, right. Um, this had four additional noms. Like we said, it was the nominations leader that night uh, for best picture, best actress for Grace Moore, best director and best film editing. And it also won a science and technical award for using the vertical cut disc method to record sound. So, I mean, is that how Shirley Temple got her little honorary? <laughs> yeah, she was the engineer on that. Uh <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this is a time when like sound was still pretty new. And so the Academy went bonkers anytime something new was done. Um, this was also nominated for AFI's top 10 movie musicals. Find that person. Okay? Honestly, like who remembers this movie enough to do that? <laughs> I know. It's like what you said, 24 hours later, I, I had to read through the plot synopsis on Wikipedia for this movie because it just did not leave any impact. But yeah. That's one night of love. Not very good. Are we ready for our final film or do we have any further thoughts on that one? Move on. <laughs> okay. So our next film is one that I think we all enjoyed quite a bit more than those previous two. It's actually the last film we're going to discuss today. And it is The Thin Man. And so this is a movie that spawns a number of sequels. Um, but it is the story of a former detective named Nick Charles, who's played by William Powell, and his wife, Nora Charles, who's played by Myrna Loy. And basically, he is, you know, he's used to be a detective, doesn't do it anymore. He does get approached by a woman whose father has been missing for months and um, or for a while, and they're not really sure what happened to him. This is a man who had, you know, money saved up somewhere and had some people in his life who you know could be going after that. And that could be the reason for his disappearance. But there's also 
the idea that he may be responsible for some murders that are happening around town. Um, so the Thin Man is actually referring to that person, the father who is missing, not to um, William Powell's character. Um, and so basically, you know, Nick Charles, the detective, he gets brought in. He ends up in some dangerous situations because of it and tries to kind of solve this crime while, you know, the, the somewhat incompetent police force is trying to do their thing as well um, and kind of has the pressure on him to solve this for everybody around him because he does have personal ties to the missing man. Um, and through it all, I mean, this is, it's not a typical mystery. It's more so of a comedy mystery film. It's not like an early, you know, film noir or anything like that. Um, and I think that's where its strength lies, because I think if you look at this film on the surface, the plot of a you know retired detective coming out to solve another crime, whatever it might be, it might sound pretty familiar. But I think that where this film succeeds is with that comedy aspect and the fact that Nick Charles is doing this partially because of like it's something he enjoys doing and Nora Charles enjoys watching it. Um, and so I really enjoyed William Powell in this. I thought he had a ton of charisma. He was always really funny in a really toned down way. I also really like Myrna Loy as Nora. Um, I think their relationship and the, you know, the, the chemistry that those two have in both being involved in something that they did not really expect to be involved with is what really allows this movie to shine and the comedy that comes from that. And so, I mean, if you're looking for something that, you know, is like revolutionary specifically as a mystery, probably not going to get a whole lot of that there. But if you really enjoy the kind of lightheartedness of this, of it and the fun that goes along with it, it's really, really enjoyable. Um, and along with Barrett, it's, it's the two best from those that we're discussing today, in my opinion. Honestly, though, um, I think every time I watch this, I have a more and more fun watching it and i did especially on this one um it is great in its comedy powell and loy have the best career uh, chemistry ever my god yeah. and then i think i texted you this brett but everybody has a drink in their hands <laughs> every single scene even there's one scene where they're going to bed and she's like you know what i think i will take that drink after all it's like yeah prohibition's definitely over <laughs> But no, and um, I used to get very confused about this film. I don't know why it's not that hard to follow because most of it is just talking in the apartment and then they have the dinner sequence and the dinner sequence is like one of the greatest scenes in a mystery film yes. ever to do like the big reveal. And he does that too, because I've seen all the sequels to these. I think he does that in a couple of these too. There's like a dinner sequence where then they reveal what happens. And Yeah. yeah. No, it's a fun film, and honestly, save the best for last here. Well, then again, it's alphabetical, but yeah. Yeah. Toby, what'd you think? Yeah, I thought it was, it, I've seen it twice now, and I, I I agree. I've liked it more this time than last time, and I liked it last time, too. It's just really fun, and uh, they have great chemistry. So. Yeah, I think we all agree that just the chemistry between Powell and Loy is just what what really drives the film and allows it to shine. Um, you know, I like, William, I, 
I think I like the comedy aspect a lot more than I even can think of because most mystery detective stories that we see are the hard boiled right. Bogart things. And then you have like this where it's like, yeah, I'll look into it. I guess I don't really want to. And then the wife's egging him on to look into this whole mystery thing. It's like, you know what? Let's reveal the murderer through a dinner party. <laughs> and like the idea that he doesn't even really know when he goes into it. Like yeah. he, he set it up so that somebody will eventually confess. <laughs> it's like, ah, <laughs> it's really funny in that way. And he does have that kind of like typical, still does have that like detective sense to him. Like he's always saying like, I've got a hunch. Like mm -hmm. I know what's going on and you all don't. And he plays it really well in that way. Um, also, I just want to say if, if Die Hard can be considered a Christmas movie, then The Thin Man can absolutely be considered a Christmas movie as well. Because uh, this all takes place primarily during the Christmas holiday. And so it was kind of nice to watch this time of year, too. Um, yeah, the, the shout out to Asta the dog. Yes. Yes, Asta the dog and also to, to Flush from the Barrett's. I forgot to mention Flush, which is a terrible dog name. Oh but, my God. Um... <laughs> I know because then it popped up. It's like, and Flush. It's like, that's a... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know why you, why you name your dog Flush, but okay. Uh, so The Thin Man was directed by W.S. Van Dyke. It did not have any wins, but it was nominated for four awards. It was nominated for Best Picture, Actor from William Powell, Director, and Writing Adaptation. Filmed the entire thing in 12 days, which is amazing to me. Uh, this was meant to be a B picture, but it later spawned five sequels total. And they're decent. Nice. Have you seen all of them? What's that? Have you seen all of them? Yeah. So like um, Turner Classic Movies, I think it was in 2017, going into 2018 for their New Year's marathon. They always show comedies. So it's either like the Marx Brothers or Screwballs. And then that year they did this and I recorded them all. And I was like, yeah, I'll watch them. And I think it's the third one where they have a baby. That's like my favorite of the sequels. I've seen um, the second one it has Jimmy Stewart in it. Oh yeah, like Jimmy Stewart's in one of them. Oh, like, it's yeah. Really good. He's good. Like I like the second one a lot. Nice. Yeah, I think that one's either called Another Thin Man or After, but it's yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. But there, I mean, if you have time, they're really enjoyable to watch. Nice. So. Uh, this is the second of thirteen films starring Powell and Loy together. Obviously, you know they had the sequels and whatnot, but that's a lot of movies. Right. And their first one was this year, actually, Manhattan Melodrama. Oh, okay. Yeah, so also 1934. I've seen a couple of their things, too, non-Thin Man related. And again, with the chemistry, that's perfect. Nice. Uh, so W.S. Van Dyke was known for only doing one or two takes at most, so the actors wouldn't lose their fire. Uh, Loy commented later uh, that this is why the film has great pacing and spontaneity, which it does. It's, it's a very well-paced film. Uh, Powell loved working with Lloyd because of her professionalism and a lack of a diva temperament. Uh, this made AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs list at number 34 uh, for funny movies. And with our last film, we have a semi-Golden Girls reference. Christian, what do we got here? My God, I could like barely find one through any of these. And then, okay, it said semi, 
But my favorite episode of The Golden Girls, season seven's episode, The Case of the Libertine Bell, Dorothy mentions that she's read everything Dashiell Hammett wrote. Dashiell Hammett is the author of the Thin Man story. And then they do like a murder mystery that's set at a dinner party. Uh-huh. I don't know. That's why it's semi. I'll take it. Yeah. But yeah, that, so that is The Thin Man. Um, it's our final film that we're going to talk about today in full. We do have another one that we want to briefly introduce. Um, but before we get to that, are there any final thoughts on The Thin Man? It's definitely one that's very enjoyable to watch multiple times. It's not like one that's like, I'll see it again someday. It's like, you know what? I would see this again soon. Yeah, yeah. It's also on HBO Max. So if you have that, then there you go. catch it there. All right, so Christian, um, we did have one more movie here that we would have liked to talk about because there were 12 nominees, but weren't able to. And so would you like to briefly go over this film? Yes. Okay, so the film was called The White Parade, and it is basically about an ambitious student at a hospital. She's wanting to become a nurse, um, semi-inspired by Florence Nightingale, who was a very famous nurse of her time. Um, yeah, it's just basically the struggles that she faces. There's a love story connected to it. Who's the actress in it? Uh, Loretta Young. Loretta Young, who would go on to win an Oscar later on in her life for The Farmer's Daughter, right? Yes, yes, because I don't like that movie. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so anyway, this was nominated for two, uh, two things, including Best Picture and Sound Recording. Now, the reason why we're not talking about this in full is because you can't watch it. It is not necessarily lost. However, the only surviving print is located at the UCLA Film Archives. Though it is in rough shape, many frames are out of alignment and the picture looks bleached and fuzzy. So somewhat it is lost. It's not totally lost, but it's getting there, which is obviously very sad because you don't want a film to be lost at all. It's a, it's a, Oscar nominated film for goodness sakes I bet it was popular at the time I think there are some clips out there on YouTube um, really didn't get a chance to look for any but yeah it's very unfortunate that we weren't able to locate this because of you know mm. it, there really can't <laughs> yeah I mean like and if unless they randomly find another print someday which is extremely unlikely I mean nobody's gonna see it the way it was intended um because i mean the way it is the way it's all broken up and doesn't look very good and so yeah that's i mean this is the first this is there are a lot of firsts with this episode of good films podcast it's the first time we've had more than 10 nominees but also the first time we have not been able to watch a nominee um and so yeah it's sad um but that's one that's something we're going to encounter again at some point there are a lot of lost films out there and that just happens to be one of them that's getting there so and if any of our listeners out there find it my god send it to me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes please do but yeah so this is this has been fun this is this step's a little bit different this is the first time as well we don't really have a ranking um you know at the end because we haven't covered all the nominees yet and so um for this episode we're not going to have any you know specific extra films we go into beyond our honorable or dishonorable mentions next time um, but we will have five more films to cover from this year and then get into our personal awards, honorable mentions and whatnot. So be sure to keep an eye out for that next time. 
Um, yeah, for now, this was fun. We've started with our first six. And so we'll be looking out for that. Um, as always, you know, please do rate, review, subscribe, Apple podcasts, or wherever you listen. Um, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, um, gildedfilms.com. Thanks again to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music. Um, and thanks again, Toby, for joining us once again. We look forward to having you once again next time we come on. Any final thoughts from you before that episode? I don't know. I'm just looking forward to talking about it happened one night. Oh, Probably yes. one of the first best picture winners that I actually saw. If that makes sense. Like, cause I saw it in the class while nice. I was in college. So. Yep. Yeah. It's one of those classics. So looking forward to it. Christian, any final thoughts from you? Um, no, I too am excited for it happened one night. That's one of my favorite wins actually. So very nice. All right. Well, we will, cover it happened one night and four more films next time and so be sure to tune in then see ya